You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. So that we can someday live forever with him. And that's what, that's what we're here for tonight. That's what this is all about. That's what we want to have happen in our life. And that's what really is the inspiration we're going to see tonight behind Paul's strong letter to the Corinthian church in what we call the first epistle to the Corinthians here. And we're going to resume our series. We, we put it on pause for about a month or so as we went through, walk through the holidays. But we're looking at uh, a study in 1 Corinthians, walking through verse by verse. And we've titled this, The Wisdom of God. The Wisdom of God. That's sort of the focus that he starts out with. That the, the wisdom of God is not the wisdom of this world. So that means that as we walk through this book, that there are going to be things and ideas that are not going to just be uh, naturally received by our flesh or by the world. There's going to be some times where God's Word steps on our toes. How many, how many ever had, you know what I'm talking about, God's Word steps on your toes a little bit or something. And uh, you, you feel that, oh, oh, there's something in my life that I've got to change. And so Paul comes, and he comes rather strong, and he speaks to us sort of from that disposition. But his purpose and his intent is so that we can be saved for the glory of the Lord. So if you are here tonight and you missed the last, uh, I don't know how many weeks in we are. I've already lost track uh, in this series. But we are on chapter 5 tonight. We're going to pick up with chapter 5 tonight. So we've gone through the first four chapters, and I think this may be our sixth week. I think we had a week of intro maybe or something like that. I'm not sure. But the... The delightful thing about going through God's Word verse by verse is that you don't necessarily plan that, oh, on day 5 or on day 10 or day 20, I'm going to be at this verse and this is going to be the verse that I need to hear now, but it just sort of happens. And so we're going through this series. So tonight, I want to put a disclaimer out here. And that is that pastor's not targeting you. Can you help me and tell the person next to you that pastor is not targeting them? Amen. Amen. However, if the Holy Ghost strikes the bullseye, (laughs) then count yourself loved of God because we can't plan these things Amen, through our own human wisdom. But the Word of God is powerful, and it's quick, sharp as a two-edged sword to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit. Now, this is where this, I mean, it's, it's all good. It's all good. The Word of God is all good, and it's been good. But this is where it gets good. If you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, this is is where the tension 
rises, the temperature in the room goes up, people sit up straight, others are squirming. This is, this is that part, and I've done jumped off the cliff. We're here. I can't go back, so we can't not get into it. So we want to get into 1 Corinthians chapter 5 here, and he comes so wise, so powerful, so great, because here... Uh, Paul just sort of unexpectedly catches him off guard, if you will. He catches him off guard. And he's previously been talking about a little bit of how they, they are having divisions among you. Now, if you've read this book and you've already read this chapter, I think this might have been the first place that I would have started. And so let's start with the number one problem. This is the obvious problem. But Paul, in the wisdom that God has given to him, didn't show up and start with the obvious problem. He dealt delicately with them because he loved them and he cared for them. And then as they are into his letter, if you've read this far into the letter, Paul believes if you stay this far in the reading of the letter, you, you care what I am going to say. And now Paul's going to bring it to them. In chapter 4, we closed out. He, he ended at the last part of the chapter, and he said, look, some of you are so arrogant, you're so puffed up, you're so boastful. Here it is. Go back with me, if you will, in chapter Chapter 4 here, he said, I think it's in, let's see, verse, uh, uh, where does he say? Verse 18, now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. And Paul has already expressed and exercised his spiritual authority. He even goes back and says, look, you can have a lot of influences in your life. You can have a lot of people that God's going to send that are going to bless you. But you can only have one father in the gospel, and it was I who came by mandate of the Lord, given a vision from God, who walked among your city. I am the evangelist. I am the one that came into your city and first reached to start and build a church there. So he exercises his spiritual authority, which they are not paying attention to. And then he calls them out and says, you're boastful, you're arrogant, you're proud, you're puffed up. And he says, I, I, I want to come to you, and I want to come in a spirit of love. I would like to come and say it's good to see you and to simply be able to tell you the things that you need to do and for you to, like a child who loves their parent, to just say, oh, yes, that's a great idea. I'm going to do that. You are so smart. You are so wise. You have been sent from the Lord. But he says, instead, you're fighting everything. You're dividing everything. You're destroying everything. And he said, I am going to come. I'm not there with you now, but I will show up. And when I show up, he said, we're going to see how puffed up you are. We're going to see how great and how big and strong your words are. And then he asked them a question in the very end. He said, what will ye? What will you? Shall I come unto you with a rod? And he asked them this question, do I have to come? And when I come, do I have to be strong-handed? Do I have to be heavy-handed? Do I have to come with a punishing stick in my hand? Is that how hard-headed you are that that's the only thing that would break through? Is that how stiff-necked you are? Is that how resistant you are? Or 
Paul says, can I come in love and in the spirit of meekness? If this is a powerful thing, folks, that we have to understand, the condition and the posture of our heart determines so much in our life. And Paul is literally telling the church, you, not I, not God, but you determine what tone the pastoral ministry is going to take in your life. Now this is an important concept for us not to rush over. We determine the tone by which ministry is going to take in our life. Why? Because God loves us so much that he will never stop working on us and reaching us. And if it takes me getting slapped upside the head, nobody's going to help me preach tonight. God says, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to find a way. Jonah, you didn't have to live in the belly of a well for three days. You could have said, yes, Lord. You could have said, here I am. You could have said, speak, thy servant heareth. But you did not. We determine the pastoral ministry, and by, when I say pastoral ministry, I'm not talking about, about the personality of me. I'm talking about the office and the role. We determine the ministry that's going to take place in our life. God is going to send messengers and people to work in our life. And so here Paul is coming with an appeal to the softness of their heart. And so now with that, everybody's saying, yes, I'm ready. And now we come to chapter 5. Are you ready for this? All right. Read. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. All right, here it is. Now he's letting them know. It is reported commonly. These reports keep coming to me. This is what I am hearing. This is not something that is just in the rumor mill or the speculation house, but this is actually an issue that is spreading around. Read on. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. Yes. That one should have his father's wife. And such as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. Paul is not appalled at the existence of sin. He is appalled at the relaxed attitude towards sin that exists in the church. And this is what Paul rises up against and speaks out for. Read on. And you are puffed up. And ye are puffed up, or you are boasting, you are proud, you are arrogant. Literally, most trans, uh, uh, other modern translations translate it boasting. You're boasting about this and just brushing over the fact that there's sin. Go on. 
and have not rather mourned have not rather mourned yes that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you all right read on for i verify as absent in body but mm-hmm. present in spirit have judged already all right as though i were present concerning him that hath so done this deed all right in the name of our lord jesus christ when you are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, yes, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. All right, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Okay, pause there. So let's take the first five verses because these go together, and and, and you can't really look at one without looking at this as a whole group here. And so Paul's given us a lot of things here. Now this is a change in our outline. In our outline, we would be in the second part of the first portion, and now we're on B, and Paul deals with moral problems in the church. And this is going to go from chapter 5 through chapter 6. And so these moral problems are obviously still causing divisions as such in the church. And so Paul is uh, writing to them not what they've written to him, but he is now addressing the things that he hears that is going on in the church. And so as we jump into this, the first thing he identifies is fornication in the church. There is fornication in the church of Corinth. Now, let's pause here for a moment and remember as we dig into this and the problem that's going on with the rest of the lesson tonight that Paul starts off, look at what he says, he starts off the epistle by saying unto the church of God which is at Corinth. So Paul is talking to believers. He's not discrediting them, but he is going to use, if you will, some rather strong, strong language here that I think is most applicable to us in a modern context, in a secular context. Uh, godless society, 2023. And so this is very important. He said, it is reported commonly among you that there is fornication in the church. Now, the word fornication, pornea, the Greek word pornea there, is uh, a word that the Greek culture uh, the, the Greeks would have used to describe prostitution. And, of course, in Corinth, in Greece, uh, one of the noted uh, archaeological things, if you watched that intro video that I shared back when we started this series, one of the noted things was all of the temples to the goddesses and the gods that they had. And one of those was the temple of the goddess uh, Venus, And that was one of the highest points in the city. Uh, I can't remember, I think some 26 or something like that. And at that temple, it was known that there were temple prostitutes and part of the way that you would worship that deity was through prostitution. So it was rampant in the city. Not only was it rampant, but it was at the high points. The temple's at a high point in the city. So uh, think about it. Uh, as literally being its own billboard where you could see from all around the city and the community. And it's on display. So the Greeks used that word for prostitution, but the Hellenistic Judaism, they would take this word pornea and they would apply it to uh, all extramarital sexual sins. 
So anything that was done out of the, uh, the defines of Scripture, the law, the Old Testament law, so anything else they would apply that to pornea. Uh, so any, any affairs, any adultery, uh, prostitution, of course, homosexuality, any other thing uh, that was a sexual sin outside of beyond prostitution, it was all encompassing, was pornea. And of course, uh, this is the root word for immorality, which translated in our text, um, in, in our Bible. And that root word is the same root word for uh, the word we use today called pornography, pornea. It's the same sexual immorality that is happening everywhere. And so this word could be used generally. In fact, this word shows up often in the New Testament. And, and one might ask themselves, will say, well, it seems like the church back then, man, everybody was, had, had immoral uh, issues. Sexual immorality was rampant throughout the church. But rather than reading the high volume or, or noting that Paul speaks of immorality as something that was constantly in the church, it truly is reflective of the culture that the church was in and issues that new converts would be dealing with when they were coming out of the world into Christ, into the body of Christ. They are leaving and forsaking a lifestyle of sexual immorality, of understandings of sexual immorality. Now, there were laws in Rome, of course. There were legalities and things that were illegal even sexually. In fact, this, this issue is one of those. But there, were, there was a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of ways around it. And you don't have to do a deep dive into Roman culture history before you realize their obsession with sex. I've never been over there, but if you would travel over to these parts of the world, you could realize that they had pornography before the printed page. They just made them as statues, and they were everywhere in their cities. You couldn't escape it. You couldn't get away from it. And uh, it was always there. But, but it also could mean a specific thing. And so Paul not only mentions that there's fornication or pornea in the church, he's not shocked that there's sexual immorality, wrong living, things that, that the nature of our, our, our natural being even knows is wrong. We're, we're convicted by those. But, but that it exists in the church and that the church at Corinth took such a relaxed attitude as to turn a blind eye, to tolerate and accept it, and, and to focus more on the person and boast about the person rather than identify or call out the sin and deal with the sin that was among them. Are you with me here tonight? Listen to what he says. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. This is among you. We are hearing about it. And not only he says that, as such and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. What he says is he says this fornication doesn't exist among the Gentiles. Yeah, th this is incest. A, a, a man is sleeping with his father's wife, presumably his stepmother. This is incest. By the definition of the Old Testament law, 
This is punishable by death. That was how strong God was and spoke against incest. In the Roman culture, this was illegal. This was against the law. And yet, there is one in the church that is doing this, and he's living above the law. And so they think, they believe, scholars suggest, that perhaps this is a person of high social status, and so therefore they are above the law. They, they don't, they're, they're not worried about the law. They're not threatened about the law. And when Paul is condemning the church for their boasting, what he is actually maybe saying is that he is saying, you are making a, a, a celebrity of someone with high social status. And you are willing to turn a blind eye to the sin that God condemns so that you can proudly boast who's coming to your church. Welcome to 2023. Nobody's going to help me preach tonight, I promise you this. Because celebrity Christianity has made its way into the church so great that it has become a mockery. Hear me tonight because I come in spiritual authority. We We have puppets of religion that stand on pulpits and pretend to preach the gospel of Christ. They have all the followers. They have all the likes on social media. And I don't dare say a name because I don't need to say a name. I'm not going to say a name because there's no, there's no gain in saying that name. If I say a name, that person could die tomorrow and there'll be another spirit enter into another person that'll be popular the next day and that will rise up. But they will turn a blind eye to sin so that they can post who they're hanging out with on their social media so that they can buddy up and say, look at who I am. And they are, look at how great my ministry and our church is because look at who is coming here all the while they are tolerating sin in the church. And this is the context that Paul is stepping into. He's saying you're making a mockery of Christ. You are making a mockery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you've been set free from sin, how can you tolerate and allow sin to come in? If you have been delivered from bondage, how can you celebrate someone that is openly and actively living in bondage? And this is where the church was at. And so Paul calls it out. He literally calls it out. Now you say, well, we shouldn't call people out in the church. Well, as a general rule, I would say that's wisdom. That's right. We, we are not to destroy anyone. But this had come to such a degree of, 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 of almost blasphemy, just in your face arrogance, that Paul calls it out. And he doesn't name him by name because he's not trying to shame the person, but he is calling out the sin for what it is. That one should have his father's wife. He names the immorality. He names the sin here. And look at what he says. Look at what he says. He said, you are puffed up. You have not rather mourned that he hath done this deed, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. So what Paul says 
And I want to tell you, I was not excited about coming in tonight and taking this as a text. I was studying in my office maybe, I don't know, it was, it was over an hour ago. It was, it was a little while ago. And I could feel the spiritual opposition. And I know that because I've dealt with situations and circumstances before. Just as I can feel that spiritual opposition right now in this room. Paul says, look, you're arrogant. You have not mourned and you have not grieved over the sin that exists. You should have mourned, he's saying, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. Sin away, taken away. Separated from the body of Christ. Now this might mess with some of your long-suffering, loving, tolerance theology. But this is the Word of God. And you determine the tone that ministry takes in your life. I determine the tone that ministry takes in my life. That in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together and my... Well, well, well let, me, let me back up. I skipped a verse. Very important verse. Verse 3. For I verily, as absent in the body, but present in spirit... He's present in spirit. Have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. The hath so done this deed. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, number one, I'm not there, but I am there in spirit because I know the context and I know the situation. I know, I know the terrain. I know the spiritual terrain. So even though I'm, I'm not there in body, I'm there in spirit. But this is an issue that I don't need to be there in spirit. Now, there are some issues in certain things, and this is wisdom for us. There are some issues, there are some things where you need to reserve judgment and you need to wait until you show up and you need to feel it. And you need to try the spirits and you need to know things that are going on. But there are other issues that I don't have to be there. I don't have to know. The word of God is sure. I can be certain for, for this. I, I don't have to, I don't, there is no acceptance. There is no exceptions, rather. There is no uh, permissible way. I, and so Paul uses a powerful word. He said, I have judged already. I have judged already. Have you ever heard of something that's going on and you think, oh, that can't be true? And then sure enough, you hear about it enough to know, if that wasn't true, I'd be hearing something else. And then all of a sudden, you make a judgment in your mind, and all of a sudden, the little devil shows up and starts quoting Scripture against you because that's what he likes to do. Judge not, lest you be judged. <laughs> well, this is another passage of Scripture, is it not? And Paul says, I have judged already. I don't need to pray about this. I'm going to tell you, as pastor, there are some things I don't need to pray about. I know the moment the phone rings. I know the moment you begin to speak. I know the moment somebody begins to say something. You know in the Holy Ghost. Now, that's not the case with everything, and prudence and wisdom will tell you you be cautious and you delay and you know things. But there are certain issues and certain matters, and this is one of, of incestuous sin, sexual immorality. And not only was the immorality there, it would have been one thing for a person to fail 
It would have been one thing for somebody to make a mistake. We've all made mistakes. We have all fallen. We have all done things. And it would have been another thing for somebody to come in and to try to restore someone and someone come back in a spirit of repentance. But this is not what is happening here. This is a defiant lifestyle of open sin that is yet claiming fellowship and right in the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is sending so much tolerance that they are turning a blind eye and they're becoming proud because this person has come in. I'm going to tell you, we should not change the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ for anyone. That, that goes both ways. We ought to preach love and grace no matter who walks back through those back doors. We ought to preach redemption and salvation no matter who walks through those back doors. And we ought to preach the justice and the judgment of God no matter who walks through those back doors. And we ought to preach that God is not mocked whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also re No matter who walks through those back doors. The word of God is true, and this is what Paul is doing here. He says this, I have judged already. I, I, I don't need to be there. I know this. I'm there with you in spirit. But here's what he said ought to happen. He said, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because this is what we do everything in. We ought to do everything in the name of the Lord. We ought to do everything under the authority of his word. We ought to do everything in the name of the Lord by the power of his will. It's not my will. It's not my opinions. It's not my ideas or my emotions motion, but it is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the authority. So you don't ever deal with an issue in the church without the authority of the perfect will of God. You know what God's will is? God's will is that none perish, but that all be saved. When you step outside of in the name of Jesus and you try to take care of issues and you try to correct things, you're going to fall too far on the justice of God and the judgment of God that can lead to death and not offer any grace. And so he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together and my spirit, which he's saying, I'm there present with you in the spirit. I'm there. My authority's there. Even though I'm not there, I'm still praying over you. I'm still your father in the gospel. I'm still writing this epistle to you. And he says, in my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the authority that the word of God gives you for your life, for your community, for your local assembly, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, there's two things here that are in Scripture that we probably are not comfortable with, that we don't hear talked about a lot. And that is this, that Paul tells them, you have to deal with this issue corporately when you come together publicly. Now, that's an important thing. I would take this prompt, and I would give this prompt, and I try to practice this prompt. To the degree that the sin is made public is the degree that you have to deal with the sin or the issue. The same thing is true. To the degree that the sin is public is the degree that the repentance needs to be made. Don't do a public sin 
and then go and tell everybody, come back the next day and say, well, I repented privately. Let me pause there for a moment. To the degree, to the degree that the sin is done, that's the degree that the, the repentance needs to be made. And the first one to fall under that judgment is the preacher, the man of God, the woman of God, the one that is the deliverer of the word. The first one that is held accountable to that is a minister of the gospel of Christ. So if you're a minister of the gospel of Christ and you commit a sin publicly, then you don't, you don't get a runaway. Forsake your wife and your children and your responsibilities and all of a sudden go to a prayer meeting, somebody wash their feet and then walk back out and say, okay, I'm restored. You need to let me preach and go on while you've left all these other things? Do you know how many preachers' wives are left, end up in the city of St. Louis? Pastors' wives? Because they don't have anywhere else to go? And some of those men go on and they're running around, they're preaching other places. I'm not against restoration. I'm for restoration. I'm for healing. I pray. If I, if I do something serious, if I do something horrible, my, my flesh, God, God help me. If I do something, you know what? If I do something and I was the pastor of the church, you know where I need to repent? So maybe I would disqualify myself from leadership, but you come back to the church and your repentance needs to be made in the same public manner that your sin is made. This is a good teaching. You're not going to get this everywhere. Be careful. It's arrogance and proud. It's boastful. I know I'm in the Holy Ghost tonight because I can feel it so strong. I'll never forget. I, 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 I need to get on. I need to hasten on. But I'll never forget. I preached for a man when I was a young evangelist. And when I left there, it happened to me a couple times. I left there in the Holy Ghost. I knew. I said, this man's a homosexual. This man is a pastor. Large church. And at the time, I wasn't even married uh, to Janelle, but I believe I, I told my father-in-law at that time. And sure enough, long story, it came out. And so years later, I was at Indiana Bible College as a campus pastor. And I was walking through the foyer of the church, and who did I run into but this man? I'd been in his home, I'd, I'd, I'd preached in his pulpit, in his church, and everything, but now I knew that he was a, uh, a part of a homosexual apostolic organization that exists. And I knew about that because I had another situation that I was dealing with as a campus pastor, and I knew it was going on in that area. Um, and that night, he said, hey, caught me off guard. I was whoa. And my first thing was, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, I, I, I came to church. And I could tell in that moment. There's a difference when somebody who has fallen in sin, who is desperate for the mercy and the grace of God, is coming back to church. And somebody who's living in sin, who says, I'm going to church. I'm going to show them that attitude. He walked out of the bookstore, and there were three other friends with him, three other, all four licensed ministers in this homosexual apostolic church. Go figure. 
the absurdity of all of that. And he came in, he came in, was sitting in the church, and I, 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 I went back, church was starting, I went back to my pastor's office and I told him, and he said, pray for me. He said, I want you to pray for me right now. He said, I, I've been getting, I've been coming under attack, he said, and, and I know what I have in the Holy Ghost to preach tonight. And uh, he said, I want you to pray for me. And so they're right there in, in his office. My pastor asked me, he said, he said, don't just pray for me. He said, lay hands on me. I laid hands on my pastor in that moment, began to pray. God strengthened him, give him authority. He walked out on the pulpit as he would come out on the platform, usually five, ten minutes after service started. And he walked over to the side where all the ministers were sitting. And he said, man, I need you to pray for me. He said, there's a group of, of, of homosexual apostolic ministers here. I need you to pray for me that God will give me strength tonight to preach the word of God and to preach the truth. So we prayed in that moment. And you can feel, you can feel, I can sense it. This isn't the first time I've been around it. And I feel it even now. I feel it even now. I feel, I felt it in my office and I feel it even now. And, and I, I, don't, I didn't know I was going to teach this tonight. This is not what you just say, wake up in the morning and say, okay, this is, this is what I want to go for. This is how I want to go. But this is what Paul said. He said, when the, when the issue becomes that public, you have to deal with that issue publicly. Not, not to destroy the soul or the person. But you have to address the issue. You have to be bold in saying that sin is not tolerated in the presence of God. If sin is tolerated in the presence of God, then the cross was meaningless. The cross is so that you and I can come to an altar of repentance and lay down our sin and shed our mistakes and lay down our faults and pick up His robe, not our robe, His robe of righteousness and be cleansed, not by our power, but by His blood and put on His righteousness so that we can live a life free from the bondage of sin in our heart. And so here he says, he said, you need to do this publicly. You deal with the issue according to the manner that it has been made public. And how public was it? Well, Paul was not in the city, and yet it was reported commonly. This is how much he had to deal with it. And then look at what he says in verse 5. To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does he mean by this? This is a very, very interesting thing. Paul literally says that there is a place that we can come to in working with an individual where we have to let go of them. And we have to turn them over to the deceiver. He said, for the destruction of the flesh. What, what's that? That's that flesh nature. The Bible says in Proverbs, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And what God is saying, what Paul is saying here, is when they will not walk in the word of God, and they will not walk in submission, and they will not walk in repentance, and they will not take correction, you take your hand off, and you let them go the way they want to go. So that hopefully, 
They will see how sin leads their life to death. And in the pain that death, that sin inflicts on their life, they would cry out, save me. And they could come to salvation. But what Paul says does not work. What does not work is acceptance and tolerance. Turning a blind eye. That will not save them. This is the hard, hard reality as a parent when you're dealing with a child or, or, or you're in some kind of a relationship here where you're trying to help somebody and you can't help them. Most notoriously, it's probably, it's probably expressed in uh, the, uh, the, the swimming incidents with lifeguards when someone is thrashing about in the water and they're frantic. If you jump in and try to save them, they're crazy and frantic. They will bring both of you down. But if you will let them sink, if you will let them, if you will let them flay around in the water until they've exhausted themselves and they wore themselves out, if you will let them sink, they're going to come to a place where all of a sudden now you can save them. You can reach in. You can pull them out. You can lead them out. But you have to recognize that moment. And this is what he's saying. He said, there are some people that you cannot help. This is a hard, hard reality. There are some people, I can't fast enough for you. I can't pray enough for you. I can't do enough for you. I can't help when someone is in this disposition. And so Paul says, rather than frustrate yourself, rather than ruin everybody else by sending the wrong signal, take your hand off, let sin have its way in their life so that they will come to a place to cry out and say, God, help me. And then God will be there. God will be there. He's as close as the mention of his name, as the song said. And he'll reach down and he'll save them. You do not come to this point of church punishment for the sake of punishment. This is not about punishing anybody. This is not that we would enjoy this. He said, but there comes a point where you must let them go because they will not be saved if you continue to hold on. Wow. How hard is that? Think about your best friend. Think about that person that you're loving, the person that you want. You want so bad to save them, but you can't save them. And, God, and Paul says you, you, you got to be strong in the word of the Lord. Look at what he says. Your glorying is not good. And I've got to hasten on. i got five minutes, six minutes. Your glorying is not good. What are they glorying? Well, they're puffed up. They're saying, look at who's coming to our church. Look who's with us. You say, no, I don't, I don't think that's the thing. I don't think that's the message you want to be sending to God right now. I don't care how many Grammys they've won. I don't care how many awards they've won. I don't care how many Oscars they've got. I don't care how much stuff that they've done. Just because they walk through your church, is, that's not something that necessarily you want to be parading around about. Are they living an overcoming life of sin? What, 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 are you, what are you trying to attract to your church? What, is this a church all just about social status? Is that, is that what's going on? Paul says your glorying is not good. No, it's bad. It's destructive. And then look what he says. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. The leaven back then, that was fermented. It was fermented. Uh, uh, 
uh, uh, dough that they would use back then. You know how it is. They, they'd take a little piece and they, they'd add it to flour and it would grow and it would expand. And what Paul is saying is this little leaven, this little issue. You think, oh, it's only one man. He's, he's, he's oh, oh, you know, he, he's coming. He's coming around. Let's just let him come and hang out with us. You, what's going to happen is you're allowing someone to come and sit at your table. That's going to impact your children and your babies and your friends and your family. And all of a sudden, a little leaven, leaven at the whole lump. And the specific sin he's talking about is the sin of sexual immorality. Can I tell you, we, we don't tolerate... Uh, uh, or we ought not tolerate immorality in the church. But yet, it's amazing how much immorality is tolerated in the church. You know how much immorality is tolerated in Congress. Be careful when you put all your stock behind a personality that you'd only shook their hand and know what their printout says that they stand for. Because far too many times they're sleeping around with people that you... Wouldn't associate with. That's why I can't put my faith in politicians, because you don't really know them. They will lead you down the wrong path. The only thing that's going to lead you sure is the Word of God. Little leaven, we tolerate that stuff. It's amazing today, Christian, Christian men, how, 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 how they fall in immorality, and then all of a sudden we all just pray for them, and next week, they're, you know, next month, they're just back and they're restored, and praise God, look at me. All the while, they're leaving shipwrecks in their trail. Children that are messed up and wives that are messed up and people, that, victims that are messed up. You just think all those prostitutes now are going to understand, oh yeah, he, wasn't, he was a preacher, but he's repentant now, and oh yeah, I need to give my life to God. You just think they're all going to come around now because you're back preaching and doing all that stuff? But yet we parade that around, and that's what we promote in Christianity in America today. And it happens, it, cre it creeps into the church. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. What's he talking about? He's talking about the leaven of sexual immorality. Look what he says in verse 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. Purge out therefore the old leaven. What's he saying? Well, and then he goes on and he says, for even Christ, our Passover, is sanctified for us. He's saying, first of all, this is why Christ died. He died. He became our Passover so that the blood could be applied to the door of my soul. So that judgment would pass over me and I, I would not be taken in judgment, but I would be covered with the grace of the blood of Jesus Christ. He is our Passover. And what would they do when they observed the feast of the Passover? They would clean the house. They would purge the house. They were not allowed to have any leaven in the house. And so for days, they searched every, every nook and cranny of the house. They're going to get rid of all the leaven. Let's clean it. we got to totally, we've got to get the leaven out because it's Passover. We can only have unleavened bread. What's, what's Paul saying? He's saying you got to purge the house. Purge the house. David said this, purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. That ought to be your prayer. God, purge me. Purge me, show me. David said, Lord, 
See if there be any wicked thing in me. See if I, if I, I, I've looked, but God, if I've overlooked something, bring it to my attention so that I can repent of it, so I can let go of it, so I can be cleansed of it. Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump. You're new, starting over. It's a begin new thing. As ye are unleavened. Then he says, therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Oh, it's so good. Not the leaven of malice and wickedness, allowing these things, malice and conspiracies and coverings up and all this other evil stuff that he's saying. No, but with sincerity and truth. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Be what you say you are. Don't say you're a Christian and live in open sin. Don't say you're, you're a Christ follower and then do things that he, he very plainly and clearly says are not tolerable and allowable. Don't say one thing and be another. God hates that. This is what he's saying. And then look what he says in verse 9. I wrote unto you an epistle not to company with fornicators. I already wrote. Now, now a lot of people think and know he's already written to them. And he's already written another epistle. So in that, man, in that manner, our 1 Corinthians would actually be their 2 Corinthians. Or for whatever reason, we don't have their 1 Corinthians or the first epistle that was written. We only have this one. But he's already addressed the issue because he knew it was an issue because of the culture that they were in, the context that they were saved out of. Paul ministered there for a year and a half. He knew the prevalence of that. So it's already a temptation. He's already addressed it. But here it is. He says, now I wrote unto you not to company with fornicators. Now look at his qualifications. Look at his disclaimer on this. He says, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetousness, or extortioners, or with the idolaters. He said, for then must ye needs go out of the world. Okay? So what is Paul saying here? In Old English, let me translate this to Andrew Romine 20, 23. He said, don't company, fellowship, associate with fornicators in the church. This is what he's saying. He said, I'm not talking about the fornicators in the world. I'm not talking about the covetousness in the world. I'm not talking about the extortioners in the world. He said, if you can't fellowship, if you, if you can't have any dealings with any sinners, he said, then you're going to have to leave the world to do that. I'm not talking about the sinners of the outside the world. He said, I'm talking about so-called Christians in the church that are Christians so-called, but they are living another lifestyle. Can I put it in modern day language? They are one thing on Sunday. And they are another thing on Friday night. Living two different lives. Paul says, don't company with him. He said, but I have now written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetousness or idolater or a railer or a drunker or an extortioner with such an one not to know not to eat. Why? Because in that day, eating a meal was a sign of acceptance. It was a sign of, of endorsement. It was a sign of saying, you're all right. And so he says, if you know someone in the church is living this lifestyle, you have a responsibility. We always, we always want to kick it back to the pastor. Let pastor deal with it. All right. Paul says, no, I'm kicking this back to you. This is your feet. These are your hands. This is your seat. 
Don't even eat. Don't even allow yourself to come with some. We're not talking about somebody that made a mistake. People make mistakes. How many know people make mistakes? How many in here has ever made a mistake? Come on, look. Put your hand. Come on. Put your hands up. Look around. Look around. See people have made mistakes? Okay. How many in here has ever gotten to the point where you can't wait till the next service because I got to go to the altar to repent? Thank God for His grace and thank God for the church that covers you and surrounds you and helps you and pray. That's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about somebody that's Christian so-called living in a defiant lifestyle, defiant sin. And Paul says for those in the church, don't keep company. You don't associate with that because you're allowing leaven. He said, I'm not talking about those in the world. Those in the world, they're sinners. I am amazed when Christians get upset when sinners sin. Like you're scrolling through Facebook, and you're like, folks, what were you thinking? Like they need God. Yeah, they need God. That's, that's, that's yeah, of course. It's, it's not worth getting upset over. It's not worth raising your blood pressure over sinners. Sin. What Paul was upset was over Christians who were claiming to be Christians better than everybody else, and yet living a duplicitous lifestyle in their own heart, in their own life. And then look at what he says. He said, no, not to eat. He says in verse 12 and verse 13, and they come to the music. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within. Let me translate that. We don't judge them that are without the church. They are in the hands of God. God will judge them. We are to evangelize them. We are to preach the gospel to them. We won't judge them. That's why these doors ought to always be open. It doesn't matter what the sin is, what the issue is. If a sinner's hungry for God, these doors are always open. We don't judge them. We evangelize them. We pray for them. We preach to them. We love them. We we witness to them. We do whatever we can to reach them. But what Paul says is, oh, but in the church, I got a clear word from God. I got a clear path forward. I know how to live. I know what's right and what's wrong. And in the church, we do, we do make judgments. And look at what he says in verse 13. But them that are without God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. What is he doing there? Paul is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 7 where it says, The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. In the Old Testament, when there was defiance, unrepentant sin, it was the responsibility of the congregation to come. Those that were witnesses first were the first ones to step up and the congregation would rally around and say, we will not tolerate this, we will not allow this here. But in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, it meant death for that person. In the New Covenant, Paul says, no, you don't kill them, we don't stone them, but you do deliver them over to Satan. It's equal to excommunicating. It's equal to saying, look, you have a certain way that you want to live. It's not acceptable here. You need to go live your own life. And let this be. We love you. We'll pray for you when you're repenting, when you want to come back. We're going to be here. We're going to support you all the way. But that lifestyle, that ideal, that sin is not allowed. It's not able to come into here. It's not 
not letting this in, in, in my house, in my home, in, in our family, in our church. This is what Paul says. This is strong stuff. And Paul says, you are the one that is responsible to put the evil one away from you. And now I know I've gone way over my time limit, and I know our children are in the room, and I know our youth are in the room. But as we've just gone through this whole lesson tonight talking about a man who is committing incestuous sin, let me bring this close to home. The reason why we don't see 1 Corinthians chapter 5 practiced in the church today is because people are more interested in what they pipe into their home than they are what they put away from the congregation. We lose all authority to come to the house of God and demand righteousness and sin when we allow things like pornea to be piped into our home. And the stuff we watch and the celebrities that we hail and that we promote and we prop up in front of our children, in front of our family. We binge ourselves on episodes and wonder why our marriages don't stay together. We turn the technology on and leave the room and wonder why our kids are depressed. So maybe tonight, we need to purge out therefore the old leaven. And say, God, I need you. I need your mercy and I need your grace. Would you stand together with me tonight? I feel the Holy Ghost in the house. God loves us more than anything else. He loves us more than anything else. More than the earth, more than the creatures, more than the flowers, more than the waters, more than the angels. He loves us. And he wants us to be his. But he will not dwell in an unclean temple. And when he returns, he's coming for those who are without spot and without blemish and those that are ready for his soon coming. And we must be ready for him when he comes. Dear Lord, I thank you tonight for your word. I thank you for the power of the Holy Ghost. I thank you for your love that is unconditional. I thank you for your truth that is everlasting and your mercy that endures forever. And I pray tonight, God, as we hear these words, God, that we would not be pointing fingers and that we would not be on some witch hunt searching whom we can show the truth of what we now know. But God, let us with tender hearts humbly fall before you that you can purify us. Give me clean hands. Give me clean heart. Take my motives. Change my spirit, Lord. Purge me and wash me, Lord. The Holy Ghost is here tonight. I wonder if I could just open up the altars, open up a place to pray.